Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, today we just have Bruce and I just we do just hanging out. Yeah, I just got back from the um, uh, Strange Loop conference, which I'd never been to or I've never been. I always felt that Strange Loop was where the cool kids hung out, and I wasn't cool enough. Um, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> it's just I think what you're seeing is a uh, survivorship bias because mm. the there are some really interesting presentations that show up on YouTube and you see those and you go, Oh, they're all like that. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, there, there aren't lots of good presentations, but they aren't like all at the level of the ones that's that have filtered their way through okay. YouTube. Yeah. So, but I got the a wider range than I, have there is assumed. a wider range. Yeah. And, um, cause I had the same impression. Yeah. And that's a, a lot of what motivated me to work as hard as I did on this presentation. So ultimately, yeah. the the illusion was good. But I mean, it's very, it's it's an interesting take on conferences, yeah. but not as different as one might expect. Yeah. So maybe I have to try to go to the last one next yes, year. So. Yeah, yeah, because uh, the guy who has been organizing it for next year will be fifteen, 15 years. Yeah. He's tired, yeah, <laughs> which it. I totally understand because he's like the focus. Everything, yeah, he is the center. Yeah, I organized a conference once, and I don't really want to do it again. It's mm-hmm. a lot of work. Well, when you do it that way, yeah. If you if you make it, uh, you know, a self organizing conference, it's not very hard. Like True. What, what we do at the Winter Tech Forum, yeah. is is actually pretty easy, and yeah. you know, you're not stressed out all yeah. the time. Should we do a winter tech forum this year? I would like this to. Winter. It all depends on the, um, the you COVID know, climate. Well, yeah, company, it's companies paying for people to travel. For turns out that is the yeah. critical factor because yeah. you know, there's every once in a while there's someone who goes, oh, you know, I'll, I will pay for myself to come to this, but it's yeah, it's significant, and most of the time companies are paying right, and providing time. I mean. They're right. You don't have to take vacation. Travel. Yeah. You're not taking vacation because yeah. it's an educational thing. And yeah. I wonder how many companies have said, wow, it's awesome. Like during COVID when we haven't had these education expenses, <laughs> how long can we stretch this out? You know, and, yeah. until people start going, uh, yeah. I'm not growing as much as I. Well, maybe we should ask our listeners yeah. that oh, uh, let us know if you'd be interested yeah. in doing a winter tech forum in mm-hmm. Crested Butte, right. Colorado. Yeah. Um, and usually we did it somewhere in the February, March range. Yeah. So, right? yeah. Yeah. Generally, because February is when it starts to warm up a little. January is when it's typically yeah. cold and snowy. Really cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and, yeah, usually I try and I've tried to schedule it in various ways, but usually now I just decided because on Friday night we have the yurt dinner, oh. and so I try and figure out is there a full moon Ooh. Friday night that because so we've got a we, lunar based calendar uh, for yeah the decision making process because it's like oh. whatever date you give somebody will go oh that doesn't work. Yeah. For this so if you've got to synchronize to something, synchronize to the moon. So that when you ski back from the yurt, it's in yep. the moonlight, which it's, is wonderful. Which is very delightful. Oh, it's, yeah. it's great. Well, the other alternative is to go on a new moon night because then the stars are better. Stars so, are good. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. That's that's the fallback position. Yeah. So Yeah. We're lucky in that we get to do this many times in the winter. Mm-hmm. At least I do. Generally, so my hope is that, that it works. But um, yeah. yeah, I think I need this year I need to get more concrete feedback to know whether it's yeah w- whether it's time or if we have to wait another year before we can do it again yeah so if we are sent i don't know a bitcoin per person and before the end of the year or something then we'll set the date and do it how do we get people to commit like well right you know, like yeah. a, what do you call those accounts where you put some Something of value, oh, uh, escrow, escrow, yeah, like yeah, or just account. an early, um, you know, I mean, the common thing to do is an early um, registration registration discount, right? So, you know, which I'm not a huge fan of those, but 
Yeah. But okay, there are reasons to do that. So maybe we'll have to do it this time. I don't yeah. know. Anyway, we'll see. Okay. Well, let us know if uh, people yeah. are interested in coming. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Fun. Um, okay. So I want to hear about Strange Loop and your presentation. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, well, this, this started happening a couple of years or so ago. And I think it, a lot of it came from our uh, examination of, you know, our, our working towards better understanding of what functional programming is and why you're doing it and everything, which is, it's, you know, weird at first, because if you've been used to doing things in a, the object oriented way, <laughs> which um, actually came in my professional lifetime, you know, we started with like, you know, procedural languages like Pascal and C. And I started in assembly language. Well, at least that was my initial, I did some work in basic, yeah. um, but then the serious uh, work was in assembly language. And that's a whole different um, worldview. Yeah. And with assembly language, you are, you know, you're, you're writing code and we were working with embedded systems. These were, you know, test equipment, uh, and so we had limited memory for programs. Yeah. And so anytime you had a duplicated code, you'd want to put that into a function, but it was really more of a subroutine and you had to, if you were making a, you know, an actual function call, you had to push your arguments on the stack mm -hmm. yourself. And then you'd, then you call the subroutine and in the subroutine, it had to know to pull the arguments off the stack and push the result right. onto the stack for the return. And then the caller had to pull. So it was all this stuff you had to do by so hand. So it's been a long time since I've done assembly, but, yeah. it, but like you, I did Pascal and assembly or like those were my first two languages, mm -hmm. but I just don't remember anything about them. Um, in assembly, is there a way to basically have something like a function, like some reusable piece of logic? Is that what you're saying? That's like, a subroutine. Okay, so you but can define a subroutine. You can define a subroutine, but if you were passing, you know, it was basically just a way, oh, you could call it, it would remember the, you know, the stack where you, it would remember the location you called from. And okay. so you could do the call and then at the then end of the subroutine, you'd back do to a, where you were. You know, so it was a go sub and return okay. some form of that. But if you wanted to pass arguments, you had to do yeah. all that yourself yeah. and return it's, values. Yeah. So it was really just a way to, you had duplicated code. You go, oh, well, you know, we need to save that space. So we'll turn it into a subroutine. Yeah. And then, you know, there were other benefits like debugging in one place rather than across multiple places and things like, but it yeah. was purely, um, I mean, it was really driven by needing to reduce the size, the size footprint of, of our of application. Yeah. yeah. You were just, you had this many bytes and yeah. you needed to save it whenever you can. Huh. And people would go to all kinds of, I mean, this is like people would come up with things like self-modifying code and stuff like that to, to, to cram things into this space it was yeah. was kind of crazy because and you know not yeah. particularly maintainable but they did it because they had to yeah yeah so Tan tangent on this yeah. i remember seeing so much amazing stuff from the demo scene back in those days around assembly uh future crew was the one that was the most astonishing and so they would they would do these competitions to create the most amazing visual musical demo uh, that they could in assembly. It was like all assembly, and they had some competitions that would constrain the size that you could uh, have your program existing. Mm. You know, the size of your program. But what people would do in like a meg of assembly was just unreal you know, 3D ray tracers and stuff. So it was, oh, yeah. was mind-boggling back in those days to see just w the crazy stuff people did with assembly. Right. And those those skills that they developed were, 
uh, let's say contextual. And so I think part of the resistance to going to higher level languages, I mean, a lot of it was those people who had worked so hard to make things efficient. They were going, oh, well, I mean, this is so inefficient. You know, yeah. you have the C compiler, it's spewing out all this extra code that you don't need. I could write that in assembly and make it really compact. But that wasn't the problem. The yeah. problem was productivity and you know, memory was starting to get cheaper. And the real problem was how much it cost to develop these things. Yeah. And also the inherent limitation of complexity that you could build, you know, in a, in assembly yeah. language and the more, you know, the cost was exponential as it got more com complex and it was really, so it ultimately was a cost thing. Yeah. And so, um, so we had these, you know, higher level procedural languages like Pascal and C that would do the function calls for you. And so now all of a sudden we have this ability to easily do function calls, whereas before it was like, okay, well, if I'm forced, I can do that. And, and it was also mm -hmm. hard to make reusable code because somebody, whoever was calling a subroutine that had arguments and return values had to understand all right. of that. There's a and, contract there that was not explicit. Right. It had that, to be in comments. Yeah. And, and often the person, you know, writing the assembly code was just going, you know, it was the beginning of it works for me. Yeah. And it's like for my application, this works. And I wasn't yeah. trying to create reusable codes. So like, I, oh, you specified, you pushed those onto the stack in the, the wrong, wrong order. order. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, I didn't know what order they were supposed to be in. Your documentation was wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, read the code, you know, right. and... <laughs> So, um, so this was a big step forward, but now we can easily create functions and people weren't really used to doing that. They, I think one of the things I just had this insight yesterday that most of what people were doing is what we would today call scripting. Hmm. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's, yeah. it's almost like, you know, the application we were working on last night, um, you're just taking whatever you can to put it together to get it working. You're, yeah. you're basically writing a script. You're not trying to create reusable components yeah. other than within your application when you're forced to. Yeah. And so it's like, there's a whole lot of programming like that. And so this idea that, you know, we have functions and we should partition it up into functions for some reason. Because <laughs> um, then you create reusable code. And there was all of these, yeah. you know, descriptions around this. Yeah. And when you're, when you're in scripting mode, I sometimes uh, will admit, I just copy and paste things instead of doing the correct reusability. You're just trying to get it to work. Right. right? And so you're just, well, I mean, the, I think especially scripting is exploratory. You're just yeah. going, I don't even know if, yeah. A, I, does this, is this program even serve my needs? You right. know, I don't, I won't know until it's working and I go, oh no, that's, that's not doing what I need yeah. it to do. And so you're not trying to necessarily use all the best practices. Right. Um, it's usually, you know, you get it working and then you go, okay, this now I'd be like better. to go back yeah. and improve this. And I see places where, you know, I need to allow for further expansion yeah. and things like that. So, you know, we were, we were moving through this. We had these procedural languages, Algol, Pascal, C, uh, there was probably some others. And, and the thing is Fortran and COBOL, you know, one of the, the super early languages, they had ways to do subroutines, but it was awkward. And, and especially in those languages, people were strictly just trying to solve their problems. And so rather than, and, and they had to, you know, I, when I was at Pomona College, I worked, uh, I had a work study job in the computer center and they had these doors and you'd open the door and you'd put your stack of cards with rubber band or they had to be in the right order, yeah. uh, rubber band around them and then close the door and we'd open the door on the other side and take the stack and put it in the card reader, it would go down, would you know, had a line printer, it would generate the results. And often, you know, because of the backlog, it would be an overnight process. Wow. And it's like, so do you want to, it's like, okay, there's some functions out here that supposedly somebody else has written and they're useful. Do you want to take the risk of calling those 
or just writing that code in line yeah and you know feeling comfortable that you're not you're not going to get that uh, compiler error yeah because if you get the compiler error then it's another probably yeah. 24 hours that's before a, you get the or some number of hours yeah. you know the that's, turnaround time was terrible yeah that's, so that's a pretty bad developer experience <laughs> yeah yeah the concept of developer experience wasn't there it was just yeah. like the Here, computer will do i get frustrated if my my inner developer loop doesn't have a compile time under a second you know mm -hmm. and you're talking about a compile time basically that you know validation that takes 24 hours <laughs> oh yeah yeah no um and so you were you would do a lot of reading of your own code to see did i get this right before yeah. you would submit it yeah yeah so, okay, so so at Strange Loop, you mm -hmm. you did a presentation, and the what you've just been going through was some thoughts that you've been having after the presentation, or what, yeah, mostly the... because I you know I did, I did the presentation, which was it was called Polymorphism Unbound, and I it's not up on YouTube yet, but it will be in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and um, it was from so um, my process through all this was uh at the time i was entering the workforce i guess there was this movement called um structured analysis and design and i was just coming out of school and thinking all right you know here here here's this movement and this gets us where we want to go so i'll studied it and i took one or two workshops and everything and it was all it seemed all very strange to me but the idea of structured development uh, structured analysis and design was that okay instead of writing these long scripts they didn't put it this way but n in hindsight i can see this is how we're evolving instead of writing these long inline scripts we want to break things up into functions because functions are good for reasons because reasons because reasons yeah. and you know in hindsight i understand oh they were actually solving the business problem of um well instead of having one or two or three people writing this program we are writing bigger more complex programs and we need to have human scale lots of people working on it. it and so how do we partition that work yeah oh the function is the perfect way to partition the work we'll break it up into functions that one person can work on yeah at, you know this function and then that will solve our um you know our it was designed to solve a management problem yeah. so that was um kind of a turns out sort of a distraction because the the design was not designed for better programming it was designed for easier management okay but it, but it was a whole you know and so it faded away and people probably don't remember it now then when i was at the university of washington we were trying to come up with better ways for um scientists to be able to use computing and like the idea of taking an equation that you write on the board and and directly translating it into code was very appealing so operator overloading and being able to do these things with objects where you don't have to allocate storage and deallocate the storage all that stuff that you had to do by hand and people would get wrong so we looked at uh, objective c and then we decided to use c plus huh. And that was this is early days, so there was very little in the way of documentation, and to get the, the they, there was a tool called Cfront, which would take your C code and compile and and translate it to C code, and as, this had to be a subset of C that was you know universal because there was no standard C at the time, and so um, the Cfront would. Um, would generate C code, which for me was very useful because when I came across this idea of a virtual function, I was like, what the heck is that? This is a totally new concept. And to figure that out, ultimately, I beat my head against it for a long time. But then I started looking at the output of Cfront. And so I could look at the C code. I didn't have to look at the assembly code. 
And I could see, oh, well, they're doing this thing called dynamic binding. They're building a table and, you know, based on the type, it jumps to a different part of the table. So I could see eventually unravel what was going on. And my perspective was, wow, look at, way, look at all the things you have to do to make this work. You have to have a base class, virtual functions, derived class, et cetera, et cetera. This must be really important. (laughs) <laughs> probably we should be focusing on this and, you know, doing it a lot right. and everything. And in hindsight, of course, um, that was uh, probably not the, probably not the right thing. But the point was my perspective on what polymorphism was, was through this kind of narrow keyhole okay. of dynamic binding. Okay. So the reason I called it, you know, polymorphism unbound was, I mean, it sounds like um, Prometheus unbound, yeah. right? <laughs> Which is Shelley, I think. Okay. Um, anyway, th- so that sounded cool, but it was really, oh, okay, there's more polymorphism than just dynamic binding. Mm. And once you start seeing this and you, so, so what is polymorphism? Really, it is treating a group of types as a single type. Mm. And so most of the time we see that in a polymorphic function, we see that as the argument, the parameter represents more than one type. Uh And so with polymorphism, that works if you have, you know, pets and you go, okay, so this thing takes pets, but that means it can take a dog or a cat or a goldfish. Those are different types treated as a single type. Yeah. But to do that, you have to squeeze those into this type hierarchy. And then there are... So that's the inheritance model of polymorphism. Yes, they call it subtype polymorphism. So, but then there's um, the most basic form of polymorphism, ad hoc polymorphism, which is just function overloading. And I couldn't, at the time, and for a long time, see that as overloading. I mean, as uh, polymorphism. polymorphism, because, well, there's no dynamic binding. Hmm. So how can that be polymorphism? Um, it's just functions with the same name and different hmm. uh, argument lists. Hmm. But it turns out that, well, like if you look up fold in Wikipedia, they go, oh, fold is a polymorphic function. There's no dynamic binding. It's huh. just got the same name, but it works with different types. The, you know, how it does it, see, that's, yeah. this is, I think, the essence, is that how it does that is not, th- those are implementation details. From the programmer standpoint, they go, I understand this concept of fold, yeah. and I know that it works with all these different mm. types. And then when I say, oh, I want to fold this thing, the compiler goes, oh, you mean this overloaded version of right. fold? I'll, yeah. I'll find that for you. Or when you look at uh, type classes, it's the same thing. You go, I want to do this thing that requires this capability here. And the compiler goes, oh, yeah, there's a there's a class over here that I can invisibly incorporate in order to do that. Yeah. And that's another form of polymorphism. Yeah. And once you see this, yeah. you see it everywhere. Yeah. So, so your definition again, which I think in your description fits with, with um, your definition was treating, treating uh, a bunch of different things as the same thing. Yes. More than one, more than one type as the same type. Yeah. You know, so, so there, there, like when you look at um, union types, you're, I mean, that to me is, is almost the most pure form of it because you're going, well, I can take a house or a, or a human or a robot and I can say, okay, you guys are all quote unquote, the same type. Uh And then inside the function, you have to use a pattern match or, you know, some sort of a type check to, to take them apart. And back when I was on the C++ committee, I remember Strustrup saying, oh, we don't want people to do type check coding because they should be using dynamic binding for that, which stuck with me and I thought, okay, this sounds like a really important principle. But when you look at union types, man, that's exactly what we're doing. So apparently that idea, you know, ultimately didn't, wasn't, wasn't as useful. I can understand why he would say that. Yeah. We went to all the trouble to put dynamic binding and use it. Yeah. But 
when you look at all these different ways, like um, when you see, like when there's there's certain types of interface approaches where you say, oh, um, for this to work polymorphically, I need to explicitly implement all of these types using this interface. Yeah. But then there's uh, something called an ad hoc protocol, which we see in, say, Rust and um, and Go and Python. Effectively, it's it's basically the idea of duct typing, except that huh. it is statically checked. So it says, okay, my protocol has function A and B in it, and I can write my code using that protocol and you don't have to implement the protocol. Yeah. Your, your um, objects simply have to conform to that protocol and you can pass them in yeah. versus, oh, well, it only works if you have, you know, you implement this base class yeah. or base yeah. interface. So there's this whole spectrum of ways to do this. Yeah. What's wild is the, I, until, I don't know, a few years ago, I had only thought of polymorphism as inheritance yeah, and didn't even realize that another form of polymorphism, which I'd used a lot, was actually a form of polymorphism, which is generics or parametric polymorphism. And I hadn't even heard the term, I hadn't even heard the term generics referred to as parametric polymorphism until, I don't know, a few years ago or something. Mm -hmm. And that I think started me on the journey of realizing that polymorphism is this much broader concept than what I thought it was. And so I, I wonder how many, how many programmers out of university are taught that in that polymorphism is inheritance and that that is all. Yeah. Well, and I feel like at least, partially that's partially my fault because the books that i've written that have been used to teach and learn um have focused on that because and it's not that it's wrong it's just that it's too, too narrow constrained, yeah yeah it's too narrow and par yeah and parametric polymorphism is a great example i mean when templates were introduced into c that's parametric polymorphism implemented i mean it's kind of weird because the template actually creates an overloaded copy for each different type that you give it. So it's like, oh, well, is this, is this ad hoc polymorphism that is just generated by these templates? But the behavior is actually that of parametric polymorphism. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, and, and it's like, I resisted, you know, I go, well, that's just code generation tools, which are cool, but how can that be polymorphism? Polymorphism requires dynamic binding. Yeah. And, you know, once you see it from this bigger picture, it's all over the place. Yeah. All of so many of these things that we use are, you know, ways to express polymorphism. So, so then back to your meta point that you've been exploring for a while is why polymorphism? Well, yes. I mean, why are we doing it? Which, or, and, and that uh, led me to um, ask, well, you know, kind of why are we creating functions at all? So this blog post that I put up yesterday, which yeah. is why do we have functions? Um, you know, why, do, why are we doing that at all? And kind of going back and looking at it and the evolution of everything. And it's like, you know, it's, it's easy to make a case for um, don't repeat yourself. That's the easy way of looking at it. Yeah. But then so when, instead of me copying and pasting my script code, let's, you know, <laughs> let's don't repeat ourselves. Don't repeat that. Or yeah. if you have within your script if you have things where you go oh this this code is really doing the same as that oh i shouldn't you know just for uh, understandability and main maintainability and things like that i yeah. should take that out and put it into a function those are the obvious things yeah but remember we did that last night when we were working on our <laughs> gradle boot project we there was a piece of code where I'm, it we noticed that it wasn't behaving as we expected it to. So we threw it into a function, wrote a test for it. And so just isolating that bit of logic 
and made it easier for us to test. Exactly. Is it, so, I, is it working correctly? So, yeah. And there's another factor, right? Yeah. You know, which I wasn't even thinking about at the time, but testability. But I think ultimately if we, if we, cause, cause there are functions that you might only call once, but you want them to be partitioned for testability. And because I think it's a concept. So mm. I think what it, ultimately comes down to is how do you partition your program into concepts? Hmm. And um, if, if we think of a function as a concept, then um, it's easier for the programmer to understand, ideally, if you choose, you know, the right concept partitioning. But, um, but there's testability, there's reusability. If you've come up with a good concept, like, you know, fold in functional programming is yeah. kind of a universe. Well, all the things that get rid of uh, looping constructs, yeah. um, those, are, those are concepts. But then if you look at, okay, why are we doing polymorphism? That hopefully will just say, oh, well, I have the same concept and it makes sense to apply it to multiple types. And it, I think ultimately it's all about um, making sense to the programmer and testability. Mm. Now that you've said testability, mm. it's just like, oh, how, how was I not thinking about that? Yeah. And, and ideally reusability, but yeah. that's not always the case. You know, yeah. sometimes you just, you just say, I want to print something. Um, the print function has a way to accept different types of, of arguments mm -hmm. and do its job. Yeah. So the concept of print, yeah, we all get. Yeah. Or read or whatever. Yeah. So well, it's interesting that that we generally name functions. And so what we're doing is we're ascribing a name to the concept. Um, there are places where we don't, where we just use anonymous functions. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the time when we do that, the concept is more about a transform and the the name is kind of irrelevant like because you would let's say you want to in a map function you want to convert foos to bars you could make a named function called foo to bar and put it in your map function call um but the name is kind of irrelevant because you've got the input parameters and the output and so you know you're doing a transform from one thing to another thing so the the name isn't as important but but i think yeah like your framing of yeah a function is is a way to express a concept and yeah sometimes and we subscribe names to them when you use a lambda generally that's a short thing and so when you're reading that code you can go oh i'm mapping so i'm transforming from one type to another here's the transform and i can see yeah. in this short S thing small, yeah. what's going on and so naming it is kind of superfluous um i mean python goes to the you know i don't i don't know how much of this was thought out explicitly and decided this way but with python you can only have a single expression in a lambda it's it's kind of an awkward syntax yeah um, but you can't like so if it's any more complicated than that you, you basically to have to yeah. create a named function yeah it's, yeah not a, not a terrible design no it isn't other than Decision. you know you actually have to say lambda oh, colon right, yeah arguments yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the syntax is a yeah awkward, people don't but... use it that much yeah. so it's um and and then yeah but interesting to say that it can't be more than a single expression to yep. be anonymous essentially right and right if it's more than a single expression give it a name <laughs> but from this standpoint you go okay that actually sounds like a considered design decision because if oh. it's more complicated than that it's going to be hard to read yeah and and most of the time when you're doing you know maps and folds and things like that yeah. you're probably gonna want it to be fairly concise yeah. otherwise it immediately gets yeah. too complicated the, yeah. it's that scale a lot of those thing. a lot of those cases where you use those anonymous functions the the name would be obvious it's 
Right. And, you know, <laughs> foo to bar. And it's like, I don't really need the name because no. I can see it takes a foo and returns a bar. <laughs> and it's more important, what am I doing in right. that, that that provides meaning? And, yeah. and giving it a name is, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's, you would have, you look at the function, then you'd have to go, okay, what's the function doing? You have to go look at the code to, yeah. to have it make sense to you. So, so small, you know, every once in a while we run into this thing where we go, oh, here's a thing that doesn't scale. Yeah. So Lambda's getting really big in a situation like this. No, that's, that doesn't scale. Yeah. And it, and it's pretty obvious why it doesn't scale. Yeah. There, there's another category of this, which is interesting is, uh, on the naming topic, uh, there, there, some people like to have operators. <laughs> some languages allow kind of anything, any operators to be defined, and I like to have names for for things like that. But there are some people who are okay with not naming operator, certain operators and instead relying on just the visual appearance of the operator being the way to explain the concept. So an example, a slightly deviated example of this is in Scala, the fold operators are supposed to visually represent like dominoes falling. And so they've, they, the, the folding left, the folding left and the, the um, slash is, represents which way the fold is going and that that one does have corresponding names so it's not the mm-hmm. exact um correlated example but but is interesting that you could use ascii art essentially to visually represent the concept of what a function is doing as well yes and that relies on the programmer of that to be to have a more have a sense of what's going to appeal what's what's going to make sense to everybody and i think the experiment that scala did i would call it a great experiment because it showed us what not to do and um whereas see look at look at what kotlin did kotlin followed the python model which is if you want to overload an operator you overload a word I mean, you, you define yeah. that word. There has to be a name. That's for it. the core definition. Yeah. And and also, there is a limited set of operators that you can overload. Yeah. So you can always call the function name if it you know is confusing to use the operator. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's always there. And it's like okay, that was that was the way to do it. And my proposal to Martin long ago was that there should be a requirement that all operators have to have a ASCII name associated with them. Right. And um, yep. I think at one point he exper- he experimented with that idea, mm-hmm. but don't know where that went. But but um, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I would agree that you shouldn't be able to create your own operators. There should maybe be some constraints around it, but I do think that every operator should have yes. a name. At the, at the very minimum. You should be able to call the name and or or look. Well, I think that's the thing, the searchability of it. You should be able to look up the name. Yeah. And, yes. and go, yeah. what the heck is this well, thing the, doing? I think Haskell has this whole website where you can search the operators. <laughs> so they've created their own search engine for mm-hmm. the operators. And shouldn't have just, to do you shouldn't have that. to do that. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, seems, and seems like it's indicating the right. Um, and and even operator overloading in C plus plus the point where you're inventing a search engine to solve that de- solve a problem you've maybe taken a mistake. Yeah, if we um, had already had something like um, IntelliJ, then it would you know because you could always go, what's this operator do? Yeah. Click and yeah. it takes you to it. Yeah, but um, but you sh- yeah, ideally you shouldn't have to yeah. do that. So yeah. I think yeah, no, it's been a I, I feel like great benefit of Scala has been pushing, well, one of the great benefits has been pushing us forward in, oh, let's do this experiment and that experiment, see what happens. And sometimes what happens is not great, but now we know that, you know, now we know, let's not do that. You don't like the tilde, tilde, dash, pound greater than operator with no name? I don't even know what that is. (laughs) I don't know. There's some wacky operators for sure. 
Okay, so hopping back to polymorphism real quick. I was thinking about extension functions. Do, where do extension functions fit into this worldview of polymorphism? That, you know, that's a that one isn't clear to me because my initial experience with extension functions which was was in Kotlin. And I was like, "Oh, this is just, you know, some syntactic sure." He was like, "You you've got a type and you can add a new function, a new member function to that type, as long as it doesn't, you know, try and you can't touch any of the private stuff. So you're not you're not violating the the, the encapsulation of it. Yeah. Of it. Um, you can add this new extension function, and it's just like ah, so it's just this little syntactic convenience. But then when you when you have some other function that takes that type, that function now is able to call the extension. Yeah. And that's when you start going, wait a minute, there's more going on here than meets the eye. Because if I want to write a function that does extra things to this type, I can add an extension and now I can do the extra things in my, what is that? Is that polymorphism? I don't think so because it's, it's really about extending the capabilities of a type. Huh. Um, but I suppose you could also say, what if I have a union of types and I'm, ex you know, it's, it's almost like it's um, duct typing hmm. because you're saying, okay, I'm going to assume that this function exists for this thing, but you have to make it up, which now it seems like we've come back to um, type classes. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, and and the thing that doesn't freak me out about this now is that I'm looking at all this stuff as variations of polymorphism. Right. And so you're going, okay, maybe this is a variation of polymorphism. What are we, what are we trying to achieve here? Yeah. What is it that we're trying to do? And extension functions are a lot more. You know. I, that there's a mystery in there that I haven't figured out. And it's like, it seems so simple. And yet what you can do with it now is more. Hmm. And so, yeah. What is the mental model for extension functions? Um, yeah. I, I mean, guess in some ways an extension function is really just giving you a, a nicer experience than, than the alternative, which is just having a function somewhere that, that takes, the thing, that takes the thing as an argument, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the way that we would that we would normally do this without extension functions. But being able to dot complete on a thing and see what the available extension functions are gives you just a discoverability that wasn't there. But I, I guess that's like, cool. That's really nice. But I think this idea of okay, this type that I'm passing into my other function now has more capabilities that I can call within this new function. That, I think, is the real mm. twist. Because that's when you, you start seeing kind of surprising things. And, and then being able to say, oh, okay, what if I do it with polymorphism? And all of these things somehow have that capability. Maybe some of them are already built in you know, that operation. So it, it gets a little closer to yeah. um, duct typing, structural typing. Yeah. But it's, it feels different than any of those things. Yeah. So what's, what's weird is how sometimes these different strategies for polymorphism intertwine because they're I, a while back, you and I were playing with type classes and we realized there's kind of this like, combination of extension functions parametric polymorphism and type classes that like all comes together to be useful mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's weird how you've got these individual strategies and sometimes we assemble them together to actually be useful <laughs> yeah although from a readability standpoint that could that could produce some really um obtuse code well i mean for example some of the code in the the red book the uh yeah. functional programming and scholar book yeah it can it can be that way 
Um, isn't um, in Rust type classes are built on top of extension functions or something like that, right? Well, like the way that so in Rust and them. Go, and this is really, I mean, there's a number of really interesting things there. And one is it is not the, the idea of reusing code through inheritance is removed. So all you have is interface and implementation. And you don't inherit from implementation. So there, you know, you could sort of see the philosophy here is that reusing code through inheritance is a bad idea. In Smalltalk, sure, it worked, but Smalltalk was a completely different beast, very different from Java. Java was, you know, and it was saying, oh, we'll be like Smalltalk, everything will be an object, you reuse code through inheritance, et cetera, et cetera. But Smalltalk, Java is a statically typed language. Oh, that's that doesn't matter. It does matter. Smalltalk is inherently dynamic. And so that really changes the picture. And you don't just get Smalltalk when you turn that into a statically typed language. Yeah. You know, the you have to have the Liskov substitution principle. You have to have you know all of these constraints which make it no, it's not like Smalltalk. Um but so this idea of reusing code through inheritance in uh, Rust and Go and I, I, I think some other languages, the language designers said, you know, we <laughs> think that's a bad idea. If you want to reuse code, use um, composition, Yeah, which is all that is happening anyway when you're using inheritance to reuse code. The compiler sticks an object into your new object. And I remember learning this way back in the C++ days and I go, uh, you know, I didn't get it. I didn't yeah. really see it. So they're saying, if you want to do it that way, do it explicitly. And then you have to say, oh, my embedded object dot operation that I'm performing on. And when you read that code, it's clear. Whereas without that, when you're doing it with an inheritance, you just call the function. And it's like, it goes to the base class somehow, imagine, yeah. magically. Yeah. So, so it's like, I think there's this general movement to not having multiple levels of inheritance in order to reuse code. And I mean, how, how often have you actually done that? Anyway, <laughs> reuse code through inheritance. I have an example that I made up while I was thinking of this. And I go, oh, okay. I can see it, but still. Likely there's a better way given a different tool set. Well, even in my example, it's only a single level. Yeah. And so it's like, okay. Yeah, just use a sum type. <laughs> you, you could do that. Right. So um, so the way they do things in, in Rust and Go is they, they say, okay, we have the data structure, pure data structure, um, not necessarily immutable, but... Um, the data structure and the operations on it are only associated through extension functions effectively. Mm. I don't think they necessarily call them that in mm. that, but I'm not sure. Um, so you do that and then, um, you know, so basically it's all extension functions and there isn't even an opportunity to, it, it's, it's not really based logic. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, they do have the idea of an interface, but, um, but that's, hmm. that's kind of it. So yeah. it's, I think the resulting code from that is going to be a lot cleaner yeah. because you don't have all these choices. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which we do in these other languages. Yeah. And I think there's some difference between what an application developer needs and what a framework developer needs it does seem like there are cases where in frameworks inheritance is more useful but but i don't know well i i have i have not really used inheritance beyond some types and product I, you know like, mm -hmm. yeah, like basic usage yeah like yeah which these languages are saying yeah that's what it's for and when luciano ramallo was here i mean he was here for a week and um that came up because I was working on this. And his opinion is that um, inheritance is for frameworks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, or even just the interface implementation thing. And you think about that and you go, all right, if we change our perspective on what a framework is, because we usually, oh, it's a web framework or a 
machine learning framework or something, these big things, that yeah. are giant architectural decisions. But if we change it and say, well, a function can be a framework if the intent of the function is to allow more types to be worked with later, mm. you know, if it wants to expand mm. the number of types it works with. So that's a very small version of a framework. Yeah. But then you start going, oh, well, all right. So if I want to be able to use more types, then that's a quote unquote framework function. And that's where I need polymorphism. Mm. And that may answer the question of design. You know, how do you design, well, a, how do you dis decide what a function is at all? And B, if you've found a good concept, maybe it should be polymorphic. And if it's polymorphic, okay, then, you know, you've written a function that, you know, represents a little mini framework here. Yeah. Because even within your program, you want to be able to expand it. So you go, oh, yeah, later I might want to add a new type of pet or shape or something. Yeah. So... I'll have the functions that work with it be little kind of mini frameworks. Yeah. And then it's easier to extend your code, to expand it, to, to develop it. So it's, it's, I guess it's sort of an architectural decision. Yeah. Even in the small. Interesting to go back to some of the language designers we've talked to, mm -hmm. specifically around more, more newly created languages and ask them what their approach to polymorphism is. Cause I have a hunch that if I was designing a programming language today, I don't think I would have inheritance. I think I would have ADTs, sometimes product types, and I'd have type classes, and that may be sufficient. Yeah, I don't know. That and par be, parametric and polymorphism, of course. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, some form of protocol you know, it, there, it turns out there's a spectrum. There's, uh, you know, if, if you have an interface that has to be implemented by the types, um, then it's sort of an upfront decision, you could say. And then if you have an ad hoc protocol, which says, yeah, as long as you conform to this, I don't know that. I don't know. I think you... type classes can do that, but maybe maybe you need inheritance for type classes. Well, and, and I guess we should probably distinguish between inheritance versus implementing an interface hmm. yeah so i i i think that well let's see can some types always yeah maybe that maybe some types because they're some types they are, don't allow someone to some arbitrary person to extend the base right because they're sealed yeah whereas a uh, type union you can yeah. You can you can work with completely disjoint types that have nothing in common if you want. Yeah, which is yeah, that's the thing. There, it's like okay, say it. <laughs> it depends. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it depends on what what problem you're trying to solve, and then you look at these and you go, oh, these this is just a selection of tools. Yeah, and I, as the program designer, has to a understand them well enough yeah. to know, oh yeah, this is a better use, or this will be an easier use. I don't know. It things be... were easier when the only toolbox and the only tool in my toolbox was inheritance. Then things were easier. I, don't, I, I only... wonder about that because because there was this whole movement to you know you know, actually there's this big fight over how do we how do we design objects? I mean, seriously, there were people who were getting up at conferences and doing battle with each other. You know, it didn't devolve to fisticuffs, but. Um, you know, they were going, yeah, we got to represent objects with boxes. No clouds. Literally. Yeah. This was, this was the level to which the battle had, had devolved. And in the end, I don't think any of these really helped figure out, uh, how do you decide what an object is? I mean, um, you know, maybe domain driven design probably yeah. was, was more useful in that case than than anything else but but it was like and in the end i didn't come away going ah i see now this is obvious and, and i think it's just this is where it becomes hmm, more art than science yeah and uh because ultimately so the conclusion that i came to was the concepts 
uh, were to communicate to other programmers, not to divide it up into uh, units that could be uh, partitioned to programmers by managers. It was the concepts so that other programmers can come along and read your code and understand it. Hmm. You know, code is read more. Than, it's, it's not that it's read more than it's written. It's more that somebody has to understand and maintain your code and try and reuse it and all of these things. And so you're communicating to the other programmers and to new programmers. Yeah. And that's ultimately what is going to create a good system. Yeah. And the, the, the thing that the structured analysis and design was really trying to solve was we need bigger, more, we need programs to be written faster. They need to be bigger and more complex. And the old techniques that we used were for small scale, relatively small scale programs where you could throw, even in the case of sending a rocket to the moon, which was all assembly language, you had to get it right. You had to throw tons of programmers at them. It was way expensive. And it still, by today's standards, was not that much code. And so we needed programs faster. And so the compromise was, all right, we'll figure out how to make programs faster. They'll not be very good programs, <laughs> but the need is more programs. Yeah. And so, which was a rabbit hole that was probably, you know, we're trying to back ourselves out of now. Yeah. We're trying to go, okay, turns out reliability is important. Uh, program created quickly that doesn't work very well is not actually what we need. Yeah. <laughs> or I, I do think that what part of what happened in this journey was that the way that we decided as an industry to encapsulate things into functions or objects ultimately was not very easily shareable to other people because of mutability and effects side effects and so even even if you are encapsulating this code and only the methods in the object are able to manipulate that, it's still, it's like, okay, well, I know only these methods are manipulating, mutating my state, but uh, it was a step in the right direction, but it didn't really, you know, it still could get super messy and hard to track down. Yeah. So I think that now with the uh, functional programming becoming more predominant in OO languages, we now are actually beginning to see that dream of partitioning with functions, partitioning work across multiple humans, uh, become more of a reality. But we first had to figure out that mutability makes this really hard and side effects makes this really hard. You're saying that as if we've all, all, already figured it out, but go well, ahead. I have, but <laughs> <laughs> it works for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, I think there are people who in our industry who have really figured this sure, out absolutely. and are at this forefront of mm -hmm. a much more productive way of collaborating with teams and many people because we finally figured out, oh, if we do this with these boundaries, then we can actually make that dream a reality of, of, sharing functions and not having to worry about, oh, was it thread safe? What, you know, was it, uh, what effect was it? You How know, did the state get yeah, wrong? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. and look at, look at objects in another way. It's like, okay, we solved this quote unquote, solved this problem by using encapsulation. But now everything that manipulates that object has to be inside of that class and there's going to be duplicated code all over the place because every I create a new class I mean, and you're going, oh, well, that's what, uh, you know, code reuse through inheritance is. But it's like, man, that hasn't really I mean, we're still doing the same thing in all of these different uh, types that we're creating. Yeah. And so we didn't. And, and ironically, that was one of the things that 
object-oriented programming was supposed to help was eliminating code duplication. But I think ultimately it forces you to duplicate a lot of code. Yeah. And for, you know, there's certain things that you need to do for every object and there's, there's certain things that turned out to be common um, among maybe even just your set of types. And so, um, whereas when you can say, okay, we just have this naked structure that's immutable, then we have this set of general, well, call them high-level primitives that we can apply to this thing. And now we're not duplicating all that code. Yeah. So this is why one of my perspectives on functional programming is that it's, you know, radical uh, not repeating yourself. Yeah. You know, yeah. radical reuse of code, which... Yep. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't define functional programming. That's just yeah. one of the things that we get from it. Yes. Yep. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, n now the thing that is left unanswered is the design question. It's like, okay, if we do see what functions and polymorphic functions and things are, how do you design with them? Hmm. And I think with all of our struggles over the years, nobody's really been able to approach it. It's maybe it's just not a formulaic thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's the math approach, which we were talking about this morning. It's like, oh, yeah, we start with category theory and we can generate, we can, you know, legitimize all of these, these high level primitives that we've discovered in functional programming over the years, the maps and the folds and the yeah. filters and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, cool. But from the average programmer's standpoint, they just need to know they they just really want to see the toolbox. Right. They, and if you start mathematically deriving it for them, they're just going to go, Oh, functional programming is too hard for me. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to do that. That's, yeah. that's been tried many times yeah. and it hasn't worked. I think, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think even using the the term monad at this point is it just drives a lot of people away. Yeah, it's not helpful. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Let me explain category theory to you, and it'll make sense. And it's like, nope. nope, nope. Uh, Josie, my almost seven year old, she's been learning math and enjoying it. You've been teaching her category theory. Yeah, yeah. That's where we started. Was was yeah. category theory. Well, I'm let's, like, let, let's not use addition. Let's not let's not jump. You know, Trump so far gun. ahead. Yeah. Let's first learn category theory before. Mm -hmm. No, of course not. Like she's learning addition and multiplication, subtract. You know, all that stuff. It's, and at some point, she's going to learn. Oh, there's some theory and laws mm -hmm. underneath all this. And well, um, that I don't. You, I don't think you could. It would be so useless to try to go the other way. Well, you would have to rethink it on such a. You know, you probably could, but the the rethinking of it is so, you know, you have to go, okay, these blocks, you know, you can switch them around and they're still the same blocks somehow. I, I don't know. You, you'd, you'd have to come up with such a basic and clear and related to the world yeah. way of doing things. But, you know, when you took algebra, they basically ideally they started by saying oh look if you do this and this it's the same and so you can you know that's what i mostly remember from algebra yeah. is like it's a set of mechanical things that i can do mm -hmm. not and i didn't go to the i don't i didn't internalize the the proofs yeah. that showed why you could do this those just yeah. went yeah proofs yeah. never worked for me <laughs> and uh I'm glad they're there. <laughs> yeah, you're glad they're there, but then, then I didn't, I didn't really internalize uh, algebra until taking calculus and more advanced yeah. things, because then you were just using it all the time. Yeah, and so I really think that so this relate to philosophy, like mm -hmm. the forms. Um, Was it Plato's cave, and mm -hmm. you and we experience the world um, and in in an indirect way. Yeah, and yeah. we we hard for us to really grasp the abstract things underneath or something we so see the images on the cave wall and we have to infer the quote-unquote underlying reality yeah that you know that's that's kind of what he was saying we do we don't have 
connection, direct connection to the underlying reality. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I think a lot of the problem with what people have tried to do with functional programming is um, the ones who get the underlying theory and it's just so amazing and beautiful to them. They go, Oh, I have to get this to you because this will form such an emotional connection between us if we both get it. And they don't really understand that for the vast majority of people, their entry point needs to be, I'm trying to do something. How does this solve my problem? Why should I, well, this uh, podcast that I heard the the fellow who was talking about how um, recursion is just kind of a, you know, a silly thing. Um, You know, it's like, how do you get, you you need to ask the question and it's like, well, you know, what problem are we solving here? And the underlying problem is actually kind of subtle and mostly not what people encounter in their day-to-day, let's say scripting experiences. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, from that standpoint, recursion is something that, yeah, yeah, you don't, you don't use it on a day-to-day basis at all. Yeah. But, but I'm glad it's there. (laughs) Well, and it is the found, it is an important foundation foundation of um, some of these high level primitives in functional programming, for example, or, you know, there's, there's certain types of problems that um, it comes up, but yeah. So back to Plato's cave. Yes. So the way that we generally try to explain functional programming is someone is seeing the shadow on the wall Mm -hmm. and we say, now close your eyes. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the thing that is casting that shadow. Right. (laughs) Right. And which is just totally useless. Like, yeah, unless you're a philosopher, right. And you're curious (laughs) about that kind of thing, but, but to, but to go, Oh no, but you have to understand the thing that's casting the shadow or else it, it, it won't, you know, you won't believe that all of this stuff works, but most people are coming from the standpoint of like, I see it, I believe it. Right. And um, whatever's underneath it is that's abstract. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we, my brain is full. Okay. <laughs> that was fun. And um, look forward to watching your strange loop recording when it's out. Cool. And reading your blog on functions. Yeah. What are they good for? Right? Was what is that what it's called? Something like that. What's your blog? Is oh, it... it's called Why Are There Functions? No, what's, I like it, what's the domain? Oh, it's Bruceeckle.com. Okay. On Bruceeckle.com. Yeah. Cool. All, All right. right. Thank you. Sure.